Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. And by Blue Apron, the new service that delivers all the farm-fresh ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Discover a better way to cook. Visit BlueApron.com GabFest to get your first two meals free. That's BlueApron.com GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 31st, 2015, the How to Debate a Drunk Person edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here with John Dickerson of Slate and Face the Nation and Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. We are with a sold-out crowd of Donald Trump lovers here at the 6th and I. Here at the 6th and I Historic Synagogue in downtown Washington, D.C. for a live GabFest. On this week's show, the first Republican debate is a week from now. On Thursday, August 6th, we'll talk about how the 10 candidates can win, how they can avoid losing, and what Fox should ask them. Then the New York Magazine cover story about Bill Cosby. They talked to 35 women assaulted, raped, or harassed by him. What, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> oh, you and your legalism, Emily. What is the, what's the proper way for him to be punished? And then Uber defeated Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City. Should Uber be stopped? Is it good or bad for America? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will attempt to do something to Donald Trump that no one has ever done before. And we'll also have a Q&A. Uh, if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, who here is a Slate Plus member? There've got to be. Yeah. Oh, but just a tip: raising your hand for a live podcast does not convey. So, I admire all of you who, who vocalized. Um, 
If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. And in a little bit of, I am not exactly sure what this is, sort of like snake eating its own tail or something, I also need to announce a live show that is taking place in another city now. I think this is like talking to your girlfriend about your new girlfriend, but David <laughs> is going to do it anyway. But wait, I have wait, two, shocking I have two that he wouldn't care. Hold on, you've got a snake eating their tail, you've got a girlfriend talking to their own girlfriend. I am totally without a metaphor to, to explain <laughs> this situation. Uh, Sorry, we'll think no. about it. It no, probably no. has to do Come with the compromise of yeah. 1877. So, <laughs> on September 15th, at uh, 8 p.m., we will be doing a live show at the Norse Theater in San Francisco. And you can get tickets starting on Friday, July 31st, at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time at slate.com slash political SF. Slate.com slash political SF. So please get tickets to that live show. And you guys should come, too. You're, it's, it'll be fun. So that's really embarrassing. Like... That's like telling your old girlfriend that, yeah, well, we can still date, too. You, Emily just made that joke. That was Emily's joke. No, no, no but, but I'm saying... extending it. I'm it's like turning the, it I'm into I'm extending it. it. I'm extending okay. it because you're telling them they can come, too, but you don't really mean it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> True I mean, I mean it. Definitely come. An advisor to John Kasich tweeted this week, Imagine a NASCAR driver mentally preparing for a race, knowing one of the drivers will be drunk. That's what prepping for this debate is like. I wonder who he was talking about. I'm not sure. Not sure, no. Okay. Well, there are, two, there are several things. So that was John Weaver, who was the, ran the McCain campaign, or was one of the generals of the McCain campaign in 2000. John McCain used to call him Sonny Weaver because he, his disposition was constantly so dark and he was always brooding about the terrible next thing that could happen. So the fact that he would make a joke like that is itself extraordinary. But, but the idea that there's only one drunk is... Uh... But there's only one drunk. I mean, we've been wondering about this for a few weeks. Who else is going to start acting crazy like Donald Trump in order to get attention? And in whose interest is it to start some kind of more histrionic, well, outspoken version so, of themselves. So let's just set the stage. So August 6th in Ohio will be the first Republican debate, Fox News debate, the top 10 polling Republican candidates, as we've all heard. There's a huge amount of jockeying going on right now to be in the top 10. Right now it looks like John will correct me, but Donald Trump will be standing front and center as the top polling candidate flanked by Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, Ben Carson, also possibly drunk, Mike Huckabee, also possibly drunk, Ted Cruz, definitely drunk. But here's the thing. But here's and the... maybe, go ahead. Wait, well, no, because Kasich, but, but Kasich may not make the top 10, so he would be in the, the, like the kids' table earlier debate of than people not in the top 10. So all those people you said who might be drunk are not because they're, already, they're in the other debate. He's in the, like, Kasich's in the other, in the non In other words, Kasich. he should be so lucky as to be on the stage with the yeah. drunk person. I want to hear that. And the list. other, so the, right now it's Christie and Perry, but so Christie and Perry seem to round out the top ten, but John, do we have reason to think it will be other people? Well, we don't know. I mean, so they'll cut this off on the 4th of August and pick the, the polls then and didn't determine. So, right, at the bubble right now is Kasich, Perry, and Christie. I don't think Santorum, Jindal, uh, Fiorina, or Graham are really even are really even close. And Fox changed the criteria for even being in the the smaller debate to say you did you it used to be you had to be above one percent. Now they've said you can just 
be, you know, breathing. Anybody? You can just walk in off the... Well, you know, it's... But Sean Spicer, the Republican... Can I go? Committee, there are 114 people who've declared uh, for president. Well, so, it's a big job. Lots yeah. of people want it, apparently. No, I know. God but knows like, why. Some people in here may be running for president. <laughs> um, Anyone? Not anyway. on the stage, no. So, John, let's start with this. So, so Trump will be... Everyone is going to be watching it. Everyone's tuning in. People are talking about it. My daughter today asked me to make sure we, we taped it because she's not going to be there so she could watch Trump. What is it uh, that moderators should ask him about? Should they, should they ask him about his inconsistent positions where he's supported Hillary and, and been pro-choice and been for single payer? Or should they ask him about this current campaign? Or should they ask him about uh, immigration, his, his actual policy positions that he's running on now? I think it's a great question. But the larger context of this is the Republican Party has been had tried to fix the debates after the last uh, election in 2012 when there were 20-plus debates, 26, I think. They wanted to have a much more orderly process in which not only were there a fewer number of debates, but also that there was more conservative voices in the debate process so that there wouldn't be so many kind of theatrical questions that were being posed by people who didn't have any idea what conservative voters cared about. The reason I point that out is that the question is, will the questions be posed because they represent what conservative voters care about or they represent what the journalists asking the questions want to know about? And in, in Trump's case, though, I think those two things are um, they're the same thing, which is the first thing you said, which is you've, uh, you were once for universal health care. Um, you are pro-choice. You've supported Hillary Clinton. Um, you've taken a bunch of positions that don't make you a conservative. I can just so, see the poll ratings going down as you're speaking. Perhaps. But, but the, one of the parts of his story that's so interesting is that he is impervious to yeah. what a lot of people have, would have said would drive his poll ratings down. Isn't he just going to say, you know, I've been a, a successful at every single yeah. thing I've done. I'm presenting ideas for America. Amer- who's going to stand up in this room against Putin yep. and the Mexicans and the ISIS? Right, 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 right. So here's the question um, that was posed to me by somebody I was talking to today about this. Is they were We were trying to figure out, like, what's your game... Trump basically, you would, if you were trying to game out what Trump was doing and you wanted to create a long-term candidacy for him, presumably he would be self-effacing, modest, right? But he is his own gravity, right? He right, 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 right. But I mean, you, just you yes, know, this is a big moment. Rational world, of right. Building, but he's not actually. Right. But so let's game out what the others would do because this person I was talking to, who's involved in Republican politics, was saying for one of those people who is being crowded out by the Trump. Um, huge planet Ted Trump Cruz. Ted Cruz. would call him out and take it to him and say whatever they wanted to concoct, but would really affirmatively go after him and that that would be the sort of smart play for somebody to do, but you would have to execute it perfectly because you remember in 2012 when Tim Pawlenty was trying to make his way in the world and he was criticizing Mitt Romney and, and Romney's uh, health care plan in Massachusetts and how much it was like uh, Obamacare and that was the thrust of his attacks before the debate. But then when he was asked in the debate about what he had called Romney care, he sort of shrunk under the question. He wasn't able to kind of bring it in the moment. Right. And that was, that was the beginning of the end for Tim Pawlenty. So, um, so the so, risk of whoever does this, because surely someone will try unless the format doesn't allow it, is that then you become Trump's punching bag and the soundbite is one of mockery that actually plays in Trump's favor, not yours. That seems like a pretty big risk. Unless it elevates you into a conversation where it's Trump and you. And Who would and go kamikaze? Who would do it? Rand Paul. Cruz. Would I don't it be think Cruz? so. 
Cruz no. is the one. I don't think I don't think Cruz either, because Cruz has made a big deal about how he's not going to attack any other Republicans, which is to say, uh, Republicans who are running, because he 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 basically went after Mitch McConnell. Um, so. So who Rubio? Walker? I don't know. I mean, so Walker. In whose interest is it to do this? Well, that's the question, because Perry's been doing it. But the question is, does that Perry, get Perry. you? That's not. I mean, I guess he'll maybe be there, but that's not going to really change the dynamics. <laughs> well, you well if you were, if you could imagine Jeb Bush, because this is his brand, right? His brand is a, a more expansive party. His brand is, remember when he said uh, that he might run a campaign where he would lose the primary to win the general, which is to say not speak to the worst. I don't think you can do that. Actually. Right, no. <laughs> It's true. There's a, Jeb Bush is going to run as an independent instead ma- of Donald Trump. The math does work against you if you lose. The, 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 yeah, you can't just show up at the convention in Cleveland and say, no, no, look, it's, I should be the one. But anyway, having said that, the argument behind that was that he would run against the worst impulses of the party. And if you are, if, as some people argue, that Trump is appealing to the worst impulses of the party, then Bush could grab that and take a stand. I think that's highly unlikely. Do we think he has the dexterity to pull that off in the moment? I mean, if right. he did, it would be meaningful because the... Well, that's what this person was but, saying. But yeah. why would Bush want to take the risk? Bush knows that he's going to be one of the top right. couple of candidates. Like the incentive isn't Why would he want to take the risk of, of possibly kamikaze and committing suicide? To escape, to, velo- a- to gain escape velocity because they're all clumped together. But the, that doesn't seem like an August 6th play to yeah. me. That seems like a no, later on play. I feel like the August play is Rand Paul, but you dismissed that a minute ago. Well, no, it's just he hasn't, I mean, I get, it just hasn't been his inclination. He's, he's, but if you look at the polls and what's happened to people like Rand Paul and Marco Rubio, they've disappeared under the rise of Trump. And he's a fighter. He's someone, and he, I mean, not that, they all have plenty of intellectual firepower but he seems like someone who could think on his feet in that moment in a way that maybe he could win. Yeah. I would give him the best chance. What, what do you think, Emily, that Scott Walker is going to do? Be kind, well, I don't. I mean, I would say he's going to be kind of milk toast and just and try to seem smart. That's the main challenge he has. Right? I'm not. He's smart. No, but he said that he's not known for being smart. He's known for being really conservative and for fighting for the cause and getting Wisconsin to move in the conservative direction. But the challenge for him is, do people, right? He right, said right, this right, himself. Right. It was not my idea. Yeah, so, the, so he the, wants to seem smart, but I don't see him taking a big risk. If what, I was advising him, I would not suggest that he go kamikaze. What could depress your daughter when she turns on the DVR to watch it is if they all do what they normally do in these first debates, which is treat them as an... They just look right into the camera. Right. They don't care about the others. It's their chance to make the pitch to their audience because it's Fox debate. That's their audience. And just go... Just treat it like a speech. But doesn't that suggest that it's this... They're only speaking to the people who actually tune in for the live debate? Because if you do that, what's your chance of getting picked up as the soundbite or your chance of having people watch you the next day online yeah. lower. Right? No, no, that's right. I mean, you, that's the other thing is that if you believe that um, the way you make your way in the world is by having said something that gets passed along through social media, then you've got to... And that's what Obama in his second debate, after he, got, after he lost Pumbles. the first debate to Romney, they sat down and said, okay, the way debates work in the world now is nobody watches them from beginning to end. They're mediated through passage through social media. So we have to create a series of set pieces that almost have nothing to do with the actual question being asked. And 
and, and have those moments because what will happen is the television networks and the pundits will all focus on those moments and they will get circulated. So you don't need to have a good debate of 90 minutes. You need to have three good 90 seconds. And so that goes... And just not blow the rest of your time in some way that we're, you're the soundbite, right. the wrong need, yeah. clip. They picked the wrong clip. Right, right, right. And what about... Um, so Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul are the ones who seem... That, that they seem in the, the direst straits of the leading candidates. Do they, is there a clear way that they get those three moments, John? If we think about the best moments in television, in either interviews or debates... Like ever moments? We well, get to yeah. include, you know... Last sitcom match. Seinfeld. Well, like, no, I. Thirty one. No, I. I don't mean no, no, no. The okay. Sopranos. Sorry. Sorry. No, I. I mean the best moments in interviews with politicians or in debates. They are moments of conflict. They are Bill Clinton's best moment in the 60 Minutes interview in 1992 about his marriage is when Steve Croft says, "Well, you have an arrangement." And he, he almost jumps out of his seat and said, this isn't an arrangement, this is a marriage. And he's fighting and angry on behalf of his marriage. And it's an incredibly compelling piece of, but it's conflict. And Newt Gingrich made a career in the last series of debates in 2012 out of having fights, mostly with the moderator. That's um, who we're missing, Newt Gingrich. He yeah. would take Donald Trump on. Yeah, yeah. No, remember Pius Baloney when he, when he no. said to Mitt Romney... Was that, that a person? Was that a pope? No, no, yes. Yeah. <laughs> or is it a bologna sandwich? Yes. Yeah. Um, when he, when Romney said something about why, I can't remember now why, what, what he was, um, what he was demurring about, but anyway, Gingrich said, oh, come on, let's cut the pious baloney, which was a great line. It was in the, um, one of those early morning debates when they had the two debates. This is why the RNC changed the process. They had one debate on like a Friday and then 12, less than 12 hours later, they had another debate in the morning the next morning, so... Wow, I bet what, nobody watched so that one. Emily, Emily, what, if you, what would be the one question you would want to ask and to what candidate? Um, huh. I, I mean, the serious question would... One serious question would be, okay, if you're really serious about repealing Obamacare, what do you do next? But I don't think you would get interesting answers from that, actually. Um, so maybe you have to ask... A, What's a mistake? What's something you? What's a mistake you've made? Your question. I always go back to your question. Or what's an experience? A difficult experience you've had that you would draw on as president? Something that would actually push them beyond the political sound bites. What, would, what about you, John? When? Well, it depends on the candidate. So to Donald to Donald Trump, when were you wrong? <laughs> never. I know the answer to that. It's never. What about no, you? No, I mean, you know, you would try and, um, to any of the governors, you'd say, what do senators know that you don't know? You know, to Rick Perry, what, what thing does Donald Trump say that you like the most? <laughs> what, um, you know, to Mike Huckabee, do you believe, you know, well, you could do a number of things with Huckabee, but, <laughs> well, I just, and by that I mean, I think, I'll reserve what, the Huckabee one, that's, um, this probably wouldn't get anywhere. I just want to know. Harry the Potter versus no, no. Darth Vader. What, what na- who's your favorite Republican besides Ronald Reagan and and Abraham Lincoln? Like na- like who's the who's the who's the other good Republican president besides those two? But besides Lincoln and Reagan. Besides Lincoln and Reagan. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. So anyway. Yeah. The Cruz. What's interesting about Cruz is that before Trump got in the race, all the expectations would have been on Ted Cruz because of his skill as a debater. But the thing is, these aren't debates; they're they're parallel speeches given in close proximity, <laughs> which is going to be very hard for Fox to say, "Welcome to the first parallel speech given in close proximity." So um, 
Do you, just as a final thing, do you think, Emily, that after this debate, everyone's going to be excited for the next one, or is everyone going to think, oh, that was kind of disappointing? I think people will probably be disappointed because expectations are running a little too high that Trump is going to deliver some super entertainment. And if he's entertaining, it's only going to be for a moment or two because he just won't have more than that opportunity to do so. Um, yeah, I think we'll be. Well, we're always let down after these actual events, aren't we? What about you, it's, all, it's in our interest to be overwhelmingly excited about every one of these because they're the only sorting techniques we have until the voting happens. They're the only play, way where analysts and insiders in the party and voters can say, X happened and therefore I've come to conclusion Y. Are they ever going to have a debate that's not a bunch of parallel speeches? It depends on the moderators and you know what, how brave they want to be um and also the candidates have to agree you know there's a series of the rules for this are incredibly carefully fought over and managed in terms of the like can they ask each other questions those are the kind of debates you want right um and but nobody ever they they collectively collude to not have a situation where they ask each other questions but if the debate is disappointing and it doesn't really shake up the dynamic and trump continues to gain ground that would give them an incentive to actually have a better real debate the next time a collective incentive yeah well collect right collective but for him yeah all right, let's, let's hear from our first sponsor. The GabFest is sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter. Business owners like me, did you know that summer is a great time to hire the best people? With competitors on vacation, there is less competition for quality candidates. But posting jobs in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. With ZipRecruiter, you can post to 100-plus job sites with a single click. You can watch brand-new candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface within 24 hours. You can be instantly matched to candidates for, from over 4 million resumes. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses. Here's one. Janae Gomez in May 2014 said, I tried ZipRecruiter for the first time and couldn't believe how easy it was to choose well-qualified candidates. I've been in business since 1987 and used all means possible. Unemployment office, ads in local newspaper and Craigslist, none can compare. I will continue to use ZipRecruiter. It's the best. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. All right. Thank you. All right. New York Magazine published a remarkable cover image this week. It was photographs of 35 women who claimed to have been raped, molested, or harassed by Bill Cosby, and then their stories told inside the piece is an incredible reporting job by our former Slate colleague, Noreen Malone, and it confirmed in a profound and an absolute way Cosby's evil. The stories told by these women who were as young as 17 when the abuse concerned, when the abuse occurred, were consistent, pervasive, and damning. As early as the late 1960s, Cosby was drugging or otherwise incapacitating girls and women and then raping them sometimes he succeeded in these ventures. Sometimes he, his advances failed. But in most of the cases, his victims did not speak up because they were young and powerless relative to him in the industry that he was in. And when they did speak up, they were largely ignored. Uh, at the same time this week, we, we had a deposition from Cosby that was, he gave in, back in 2005 in which he admitted getting quaaludes to give to women he was going to have sex with. So, Emily, what is the legal jeopardy for Cosby right now? 
It's low. There's one pending criminal investigation in Los Angeles that is from allegations that are in 2008, so the statute of limitations hasn't fully run out yet. It's going to be hard for the police to bring charges, even um, 2008 is a long time ago. It's hard to gather evidence, especially about this kind of crime. There is also one civil suit pending, uh, but that seems unlikely to me, although the judge refused to dismiss it this week or last week, which means that it's possible Cosby could be have to take another deposition. Uh, one imagines he's not going to, again, admit to having used quaaludes. Um, so... And, and then there's this civil suit that settled in 2006, brought by Andrea Constand, who's the, if not the first woman to come forward, one of the very first and has been very vocal. And I, you know, that, and that's, that suit, we don't know what, how much it settled for. Surely in light of all these allegations now, it would seem like a low-balled amount. But I think it's important to remember that the reason we have the best proof against Cosby, his own deposition, is from that lawsuit in 2005. It actually is really important in the story. And, um, you know, to me, that's the, um, the best reason to, 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 to describe these charges in the, or these accusations the way you just did, as if they're true. Because there's so many women who've come forward, yes, that's certainly part of it. But also he essentially admitted, although he's trying to reinterpret interpret the meaning of this, that he was drugging people and then, you know, having sex with them or sexual contact with them that they were not really conscious for. And his idea that it's the same thing as giving someone a drink is seems so ludicrous that he was has actually really damned himself in his own words and that's because of the suit that Andrea Constan brought why couldn't you bring a civil case saying that the pain and the damage is ongoing and in fact it's been exacerbated by all of the recent publicity, which now brings up this horrible... So the lawsuit that's alive is the theory for it is I couldn't come forward earlier because I didn't realize the psychological damage early enough, and for that reason, the statute of limitations should be extended. And what's interesting about this... So why do we have a statute of limitations? Most states, except for murder, you can't be charged many years later with the crime. And there is good reason for that. We worry about evidence going stale, and we also want people to move on with their lives, even people who've committed crimes. It just seems like it's too paralyzing to be constantly having this hang over your head. But what's so interesting to me about this case is it's one in which clearly the social norms have totally changed, right? I mean, in the 70s and even in 2005, you could be deluded enough if you were Bill Cosby and had all his power and celebrity to think it was okay to drug someone and then have sexual contact with them. And now it's clearly not. So what do we do as a society when punishment seems out of reach because at the time, this act did not appear serious and criminal to us? in a way that now it horrifies But it would have been at the time criminal if somebody had come forward. It's not the norm that changes in terms of the crime. It's the norm that changes in terms of being able to come forward and it's not even a norm, but it's it's the thing that's changed is not the crime, but the barrier against reporting it, right? Well, it depends when we're talking about it. I mean, rape laws changed a lot in the last 30 and 40 years. And one of the things that's still at issue is when is incapacitation a defense to rape? When is it 
count, you know, there's, that's actually not something the states have all settled. Um, so I don't think that that's entirely clear. And what I do think is clear is in the 70s and 80s, if, and this, Andrea Constand went to the police and they said, for lack of evidence, we're not bringing charges. So she tried. Yeah. And I think that reflects at the time, it was just very hard. If you had gone off somewhere with someone who then raped you and you seemed to have put yourself in a, right? I mean, that whole idea of date rape didn't right, right, right. exist right. in the same That's way. Right. That's right. What, why do you think the allegations mostly seem to have stopped by 2000? I mean, so they, with Constant is a little bit later, but basically there's a huge number from the in 60s, the 70s, 70s 80s, 80s, and then it really trickles off. Do we think that the... Maybe he got old and did it less? Yeah. Is, do you think, John, what do you think the right punishment is? Do you think the punishment is we have to find some, mecha- some criminal mechanism to, to, to get him into jail? To find, even if you can't get him on these old rape charges, like, let's, let's look, let's, let's get the tax like evasion. Like tax evasion? Oh. Or do you think... Wait, it, is say it, that again? Do what? It, should, should the criminal justice system, should prosecutors make a profound effort to search out and, and seek... To, to find some pretextual criminal reason to charge him. They can't charge him for the real crimes that he may have committed, but find something else which they never would charge him with otherwise, but just to get the guy. In well, the right. So there's system. the question of punishment, which is one thing, punishing him for what he did wrong. And then there's the question of the message that's sent to everyone else. You need the punishment because you need to say this is not okay. Well, you Don't need you think some that the, punishment. Isn't the, but arguably we're punishing Well, him. that's my point. But is don't that, you... I, I mean, I... I probably shouldn't say this. I mean, isn't it adequate? This is a person who can never walk out in public again without being ashamed and seen as a rapist. And it's true, he will never go to jail for his rape. And he probably will die a rich man. But that the level of humiliation and disgrace and and damage to him reputationally and to his art is complete. And and that that, that is not... I'm not saying that that, you know, if he rape someone, he shouldn't be criminally charged. But if you can't criminally charge him, isn't, isn't that societally adequate? Perhaps. I think you do want a... Um, you want the system that we all agree to behave by and abide by to speak in a less impotent way, to in some way uh, lock in that this is not right and that this cannot go... You, you can't just get off free in the end somehow. I think that there has but to how be some... Co- what system? No, I don't know. She's the lawyer. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying that what you describe, and that's normally my position, right? People have suffered enough and... and 77. Not, yeah, but, but I feel like um, the system needs to, to be a part of this more than its position now, which is, well, we can't do anything. It's all, it's all in the past. That seems to me to be... But we can't... I mean, I really hate the pretextual criminal charge. As a general matter, I just think that's an awful idea. Not Pretextual, pretextual criminal charge, meaning you find some pretext yeah, to go... Like, you know, You whatever. get right. Al Capone for tax evasion. Criminal perjury. Right, or Al Capone for tax evasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want... I just don't... I don't... Yeah. But... And I also, I mean, I don't, I don't know um, the law in California well enough to know whether I think the civil suit should proceed or not, but I'm really interested in whether it is possible to, to succeed um, in making an argument that because you only understood the psychological impact later that you could, I mean, if that suit could go that forward, like that's... a terrible precedent. Well, potentially, that right. Terrible. The problem is like it opens why, up you know, oh, the I problem understood of it false, 50 years later. Well, you can argue that we, our understanding of rape has changed, and so I repressed these feelings of trauma I had at the time because there was no 
way to safely express them. But now it's, it's, it's tricky. I, I'm not sure about that. What I do think, though, about the reputational cost, so one of the um, alleged victims who Noreen interviewed made this great point, which is basically that the impact of all of these women standing together is that Bill Cosby is going to be like OJ. He's not going to be remembered for his art and his professional prowess. He's going to be remembered as a serial rapist. And as you said, that's not nothing, especially for someone who has had such a completely other sort of image. And if you think about the message that that's sending, the fact that finally, you know, this person who is this beloved father figure to so many Americans is actually... Um, not being remembered that way, that's, that's a kind of accountability, a social accountability. Do you think that the, that the norms have changed enough that if there were a, a comedian or a celebrity doing Cosby-like things today that people would narc him out immediately or that this could continue? I would Is like it- to think you couldn't get away with this, but I bet you could get away with some of it for some amount of time. I mean, the problem with coming forward against someone really powerful remains, right? right. And, and there was what- a reason for a long time that the press treated these women as if they were well, opportunists uh, who were going for a shakedown. And that's why you would want a system that says, you know what, you can never get away if you behave like this. That's why Meaning you want what? that. Meaning that even if you know you think it you're getting away with it on. now... But, like, this will... Y- but meaning what? Oh, meaning, I don't know. I don't know. What? I'm meaning just saying... Meaning you can bring a civil suit 50 years later? You yeah. Can bring a, you yeah. can bring a criminal case 50 years later? Yeah. Don't much, maybe not criminal, but civil. How much does it matter that the reason that, you know, Cosby... This, so, obviously, the story was simmering for a very long time. Then in 2014, the comedian Hannibal Burris had this, you know, moment. And he was calling Cosby out for hypocrisy. Essentially, he was saying, like, hey, you're the one who's telling, you know, black dads to behave better, but you're a rapist. Does, does Cosby's hypocrisy matter anymore? I realized in prepping for the segment that I had sort of forgotten. Not, I mean, just that it no, no longer loomed as large to me that that was the reason why, um, why Burris's comment took off in the way it did. I don't know. I was going to ask another question, which isn't, but I, I, but I realize that's not answering think, your question. Um, does it matter that the hypocrisy matters? I suspect. Yeah, I mean, you're not usually moved by hypocrisy arguments. No, I, I mean, I like. But that's a, there's a special reason for that. <laughs> what the, I don't know what why the they're fuck laughing. Does that mean? I don't know why they're laughing. I don't know. You'll have to ask that's them. Not my, that's not my. That's not my sin. Ask them at the at the San Francisco He's show. Like up and down his chair nervously now. <laughs> God, that is so not my sin. <laughs> Vanity, arrogance, ego. No, no. But hypocrisy. I'll, re- I'll wrestle you for those. <laughs> um, do you think? Do you think that? Do you think that hypocrisy matters for him? I feel like we're so far past that. So I mean, one of the reasons the judge gave for this deposition not being sealed was that Cosby had put his own public reputation on the line. Sort of like the whole Kogan discussion. Like, hey, don't talk to me about privacy now. You're the one who got up there and made right. yourself the paragon of virtue. Oh, that's not that Hulk Hogan ever did that. Yeah. So, David, what, what's your view about, the, um, about Cosby's art or his, his works? Like, so what happens to... All of those, you know, the Cosby show. What, what happens to that? It's going to be strange. I think it's, it's strange because here you have this show, which is hugely important. And we were talking last night to a TV historian who was just talking about this is the great bridge. The show is a bridge in all kinds of ways around race, race around family. comedy, around family on TV. It's, 
We've enormously lost that show, I think. And it's, yeah, no one can it's watch gone. it again. And yet it, so it's going to be this kind of scissora or whatever, they, some gap in the Someone's history of television. Someone's going to have to make no another show. They have to go back to the 1980s. Yeah, they're going to talk about, oh, Family Ties was the most important show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, the reruns have been pulled, but also I think we would have all, a lot of people would have made that decision. I had actually tried to get my kids interested in that show a few years ago, and they watched a few episodes. They just sort of went, they weren't super into it, but I would never try that again now. I would not try to resurrect it. It would just feel dirty. All right. Let's hear from our second sponsor. The GAFS is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. You'll cook meals like smoky shrimp and creamy cheddar grits with corn, zucchini, and cherry tomatoes or crispy eggplant pitas with beluga lentil salad and spiced yogurt. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com gabfest. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is the latest person to get into a fight with Uber and lose. De Blasio proposed to limit Uber vehicle growth in New York City to 1% a year. It's growing more like 50% a year. There are now, I think, 20,000 Ubers on the streets of New York. He proposed that in order to reduce congestion and presumably to protect the taxi industry, which has been hammered by Uber's arrival. Uber has caused just huge distress in the licensed taxi industry in recent years, including in my own family, because my wife's father-in-law, his No, chief, your father-in-law. My father-in-law. My, yes, exactly. <laughs> my wife has another father-in-law. My father-in-law. Uh, nice save, Emily. Is a, with a cabbie, and, and the, his chief asset is his medallion, which is now plummeting in value. Uh, Uber's also been hit by regulators in France, which has barred some Uber services, but has generally, it has pushed its way across the globe. The question is, is this a good thing? So, Emily, is it a good thing that Uber is having such success everywhere? Uber is disruptive and imperfect and not, people are not making a living yet in the way that they should. And we're in this moment, which is great for consumers, at least where I live. It's, we have a terrible taxi service. Uber is like 10 times better and I'm really grateful for it. However, it's not treating, I mean, it it says it has no workers. It's not treating its drivers the way it should. And the government should come in and impose more requirements. There's some sort of middle ground, but it's the taxi industry, the the more I read about it, the less I wanted to stay the way it was. I mean, we essentially have, particularly in New York City, and maybe your father-in-law is an exception to this, a situation where most of the people who own medallions are not driving the cabs. The people who are driving the cabs are spending half their day trying to get up to the point where they're even taking anything home in their pockets. And and it's just a completely dysfunctional situation in which people who want rides spend forever trying to get them. I, so I've been using Uber in New Haven, which has, as I said, just an awful system. And I've been interviewing the drivers and just like asking them what it's like. And none of them are making a good living out of Uber. So that's the problem that needs to get solved. However, a lot of them are former Metro, former metro taxi drivers. And they're just, they explain to me why no one ever comes to pick me up when I call 
call them in any reliable way. It's, they don't even, they're so pissed off at their company, the way the dispatch service works. There's no real incentive for it to line up. Whereas if you are making money by responding to rides, it's a different situation. So we should need to fix it, but we should be really glad it's here. Do you, do you agree with that, John? Well, Washington had a similar cab issue. Yes, uh, I do recall. Diamond, yeah, Diamond Cab was just in a permanent state of repose. You would call them, and they'd be, they'd be just like... It was well, as just, if you were bothering them. Yeah. But I think this matters because Uber is the case that, I mean, we're seeing, where we may be seeing, and this is a debate about, this is, a, this is the test case for all kinds of other different... Um, battles that are to come in whether you call it the gig economy or the, the freelance economy. And the question is whether the gaps that need to be filled about in um, either health insurance or worker protections or even savings come from the government regulating it or the government creating institutions and vehicles to help people who are freelancers join collective groups to gain bargaining power to fill those gaps that normally would be filled by an employer in a traditional job. Right. So, there, so I think Uber had, was able to make hay for quite a while about being the upstart and going up against, you know, what truly are pretty poor entrenched interests in the taxi industries, which gave bad service and, and you know, had all kinds of bar- barriers to entry that were, that were bad. But now Uber is the giant. Now, now Uber is the dominant force. Uber is sets the rules. It's, it is they got the, to Blasio the, to back down, even though he got and, there, and there's, also, there's also a sort of like, it's a, it's a high class problem too. I mean, the, you know, the way in which the people who rushed to the defense of Uber were like all celebrities. I love this line in the New York Times. Uh, Across social media, the company found its arguments reinforced on the Twitter accounts of Ashton Kutchner. Kate Upton, Neil Patrick Harris, and other infrequent participants in the municipal taxi dialogue. (laughs) No, they're at every meeting. They show up. I see them on local access all the time. (laughs) There's also this way in which Uber Uber is is a business. All these driving businesses are businesses with a time horizon. Because taxis, it seems pretty clear that, that self-driving cars are going to come and the humans who drive them, who drive taxis and who drive Ubers today are going to lose their jobs. Maybe not in five years, but They will be glad in to 20 be years. mystery. I mean, ugh. What's so, that? So, well, this They'll means be glad to lose their jobs? To be mystery. Like, we should essentially, they should be lucky that they're, you know, driving at all because pretty soon they're not going to be any of these jobs. I don't really like where that's no, going. No, but do I was just stating that as a fact. I know you are. I was stating that as a I fact. I was, I wasn't. We're but being very mean to David today. I don't know what's, what's going on. The, but given that, given that fact, is the, I mean, is this a problem that is like a persistent problem that, that society well, has to deal with? we're not there yet. And so this problem John was getting at, that there's a disconnect between the way the government's set up to protect people and Uber as this example of the freelance economy is a real problem. And the self-driving cars aren't going to show up in six months, right? I think what's frustrating to me is the way in which Uber just ducks its entire responsibility. As It's a corporate overlord, and it's... Yeah, like it had. There's, you know, it's it's the way it the way it pretends that all these people who work for it don't really work for it. That it's not really responsible for. And it's like the worst of Silicon Valley, right? These guys are such. Yeah, they're they're Ayn Rand. They're Ayn Rand douchebags. Totally. Sex, like they're awful. But 
But is it Uber's problem? But is that Uber's problem right. to solve? Is it Uber's problem to say, okay, we're going to make sure there's better child care and that that you know they well, it's well the here's the question: I mean, the market access to health can the market insurance? fix this? In other words, if benevolent rides are us came onto the market, would people spend the extra dollar? to ride in benevolent car rides are us because they treat their workers better. Secondarily, if people wanted to fix the Uber problem, they would just tip their drivers five bucks at the end of every, give it to them in cash, which they won't declare, which gives them more income because you know they're not getting all these other... Um, I mean, when you think about what it takes when you are a freelancer to keep up with, like, ta- with the taxes and your health insurance and all of the stuff that you have to stay on top of and especially when a vehicle's involved and then the passenger insurance I mean it's an extraordinary amount of upkeep to be a freelance driver I think that's right Right. Even though Uber says that you don't so need to tip, the, we actually should tip. Could it's the market true. fix it or... Well, the other thing is the courts are stepping in. I mean, there's a case in California that a woman's brought in which she's trying to say, yes, I am your employee. And, and so far, Uber is losing that fight. And that's another way in which the government can step in and address this, that if benevolent rides dot com or us whatever doesn't appear that uber gets forced essentially by regulation or legal oversight to start stepping up right so then you end up with a highly regulated industry but maybe with, you end with up drivers in the are working are working as employees of a company you know it but sounds like a taxi industry the, well but the taxi medallion system was set up in the 1930s and has been limited right. as a resource in this way that it's seems to have nothing to do with no, the current economy so if uber allows us essentially to step out of that sclerotic dysfunctional system into one in which yes you have employees of a rideshare company so but how sure. but is this i mean hillary clinton made a little bit about this in her in one of her speeches recently we have all the. There was the nail salon story in the New York Times, just about how the the awful way in which nail salon workers in New York City are mistreated. There was the, another, I think, good New York. I think again, it was a New York Times story about the um, the way people now have to. They can't have reliable work schedules. Like you, you work for Starbucks, or you work for Walmart, and they can just make you. Today, you're working, you know, Saturday from four to midnight. Tomorrow, you're working eight a.m. to noon, and you just can't. You just can't count on it. You, it totally screws up your childcare. It totally screws up your sleep. Are these where is that where are the remedies going to come from? Are they going right. to come from the federal government or well, state governments? It feels like the, the federal government is sort of saying no. We're, we're back in the 19th century. I feel like we're in the 19th century. It feels like that's that's the moment. It seems it seems like late 19th century. It's free labor, so workers have opportunity. They can go out and do things, and they have lots of choices. But the government it just has just backed off from its responsibility to provide these larger protections. Well, but in New York with the nail salon story, I mean, right away, the governor and the attorney general said, hey, we need to investigate here because these seem like violations of really clear laws we have in place to protect workers. And should it all have been going on in this underground economy way with no one realizing it? No, but there there are legal remedies for that situation. Whereas the problem of people being asked to work really inconsistently in hours was that seemed much more like, all right, now we're talking about rapacious corporate profits using a kind of software for scheduling that wasn't available for that's hyper-efficient but makes people completely miserable. Well, the question is also one of size. So is Uber, is Uber really, is Uber, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, are they all, 
the wave of the future in terms of a large share of employment, in which case then you would need government re- um, remedies. Or are they just basically a newfangled version of what we used to have? You know, so we used to have temp, you know, Kelly temps and things like that, where, yeah, there were regulations, but it wasn't a large enough portion of the workforce that people got excessively uh, exercised about it. And that's, it seems to me, to, uh, to be the, the big question, because if, if this is the way we're all going to work now, or the, our kids are going to work, then it also changes the conception of the way we think about about the American dream and about where you live and the kind of house you have and the kind of life you have and the kind of kids you, well, not the kind of kids you have, but when you have kids, because if you're living in a life where you're never going to be able to schedule your childcare, then you're, you know, either not going to, not going to have kids or you're going to demand from your politicians that there's some kind of remedy from the state. Um, and I don't think we know the scale yet. I mean, there have been studies that say this is the new thing and it's going to be the way everybody works. And then the Wall Street Journal was saying, no, it's just the same old thing with new, with new names on it. Right. I mean, this is also about underemployment. Some of my Uber drivers who I've been interviewing say like, well, you know, I retired. I'm doing this on the side to pay for my golf game. That's different from I really wish I could make this work, but I'm scrambling around. What I really want is a decent full-time job with benefits, but this is all I can do. Those are people with very different vantage points right. and they want and a different right. kind and of regulation. Who do we optimize for, right? Yeah. Good questions. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When... You're having your, you're finishing off your Bud Light, John Dickerson, or you're not, you're having a DC brow, not a Bud Light. When you're finishing off your, I'm only having that because David was nice enough to offer it, to let me have that one. Um, thank you. So what's your, what's your DC, what's your cocktail chatter? Actually, there is a DC. there's a DC element to my cocktail chatter. So, as as listeners of the show uh, will know, my one of my favorite books in the world is *The Glory and the Dream* by William Manchester, um, which is the history of the United States from 1932 to 1972. And I started reading it um, in the summer. I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whenever I first found it in the old bookstore in Maine. And I now. Um, read it all the time and listen to it on an audible 60 hours for any of you it's like six bucks for 60 hours it's the best value in going um and it's there's That's nothing a, i thought those are aren't those uber wages yeah <laughs> that's right um and there's nothing better than when you're running you know coming up that tough hill when hearing about the liberty league and fdr um the um Anyway, so it's summer, and I was driving through New Hampshire, and I, so I had it on again, and I was reminded of a story that I can't believe I haven't chattered about, but which is one of my favorite stories about Senator Joe McCarthy, who was really, when we think about characters, he really, uh, he was an incredible character. And we don't, we, we get, people get exercised about, like, what Ted Cruz does. Ted Cruz, you know, in terms of a senator who acts out and causes headlines, he, he's not within 100 miles of Joe McCarthy. I mean, so just one fun little fact about Joe McCarthy before we get into the Washington, um, D.C.-based story. So there was this Senator Millard Tidings of of Maryland who was in the Senate for 24 years. And he had gotten on the wrong side of McCarthy, basically saying McCarthy was being too overheated in his search for communists. So McCarthy contrived to create a picture of Tidings 
the day before the election in Maryland, he dropped this Photoshop picture of Tidings and the head of the Communist Party as if they were having a conversation. And they dropped it in a, in a, uh, like a broadsheet that looked like a newspaper or a tabloid called For the Record and put it on 300,000 doorstop, doorsteps in Maryland, like blanketed the state of Maryland the night before the election. And Tidings lost by like a very small margin. Um, so that was the kind of high-level, graduate-level chicanery uh, McCarthy was up to. So one of the people calling out McCarthy was a, was a, um, was a columnist named Drew Pearson who um, wrote The Washington Merry-Go-Round, and he was a tough fellow, Drew Pearson. Pearson was knocking uh, McCarthy both for his overboard attacks on everybody being a communist, but also on the fact that he hadn't paid his taxes. And so they meet each other at a, um, at a party at the Soulgrave Club, which is in Washington, D.C. It's used to, you used to be able to look out of David Plotz's old office at Slate, and you could see the Soulgrave Club. It's, on, it's this Beaux-Arts building on, um, on DuPont Circle. And they were at this party, and, and um, Joe McCarthy liked a drink or two. And so um, he was pretty much, he'd had a snootful, and he ran into Pearson on the dance floor. I mean, then they weren't, they were dancing with individuals other than each other. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm going to put you, McCarthy said to um, Drew Pearson, you know, I'm going to put you out of business with a speech in the Senate tomorrow. There isn't going to be anything left of you professionally or personally by the time I get finished you with you. Pearson looked over at him and said, Joe, have you paid your income taxes yet? At which point McCarthy like leapt at him. But the, they, they were uh, separated on the parquet floor and that was the end of it. So, but then the story continues when a freshman senator who had not yet even been sworn in, but who had just won election in California, walked down to the bathroom, uh, checking out for the evening, and found a sweaty, drunken McCarthy giving, it, giving a pack of fives to Drew Pearson repeatedly in the bathroom. And, and Pearson, who's like reeling, Pearson's like 20 years older than McCarthy maybe, is getting his butt kicked, but nevertheless is able to choke out, when are they going to put you in the booby hatch? At which point McCarthy starts to strangle Drew Pearson. And like, you know, as our correspondent from California writes, um, he had his big thick hands around Pearson's neck. Pearson was struggling wildly to get some air. When McCarthy spotted me, he drew his arm back and slapped Pearson so hard that his head snapped back. That one was for you, Dick, McCarthy said. Our, cor- our, our correspondent, it turns out, is Dick Nixon. <laughs> the future president. McCarthy turns to him, still strangling poor Drew Pearson, and said, I'm going to prove a theory. If you knee a man in the groin hard enough, blood will come out of his eyes. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It ain't like this in Washington anymore, is it? I guess not. I mean- we just need some more... That's uh, like the Cain We need the story. senators to hang out more with... With, uh, <laughs> with each other, with, right. With each other and with so journalists. So at this point, um, uh, Mac- uh, McCarthy followed through on uh, that uh, colorful description, um, but the, n- there is no recording of the, uh, whether the uh, medical experiment resulted in the, what he had hoped to achieve, but Nixon stepped in and said, let a Quaker stop this fight. He took McCarthy by the arm and said, come on, Joe, it's time for you to go home. And McCarthy wouldn't let uh, Drew Pearson, he, he made Pearson go first because he thought he would club him um, when he walked out, if he walked out behind him. So after that, McCarthy couldn't remember where his car was. Uh, 
Um, and so he and the new freshman senator from California spent apparently, uh, according anyway to William Manchester in The Glory and the Dream, a half an hour searching the area for the Wisconsin now, license plate. that can plate. happen to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> like me. There's sympathy for Joe McCarthy over yes. there. <laughs> That's happened to me. Um, so anyway, they finally, after half an hour, found it. And, um, and, and uh, Joe McCarthy roared off and four years later would run into his uh, troubles in the Senate. But the coda to this story is that in 1952, when Nixon is going to be Eisenhower's, well, he is his vice presidential pick, um, he runs into trouble because of uh, donations that are given in return for political expenditures. And the columnist who causes all the great trouble for Nixon, which then causes Nixon to give the checkers speech and save his hide, but, but before that was basically he was going to get kicked off the ticket, the columnist who caused all this trouble was Drew Pearson. So Nixon probably at the time would have thought that he would have let McCarthy just finish his business. But um, anyway, that's know. it for the story of Joe and Dick and Drew. That was a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, what is your chatter? No one, I am not going to top that chatter, and no one is going to cheer at the end. Let's just put that out there. Okay, so Cecil the Lion, sad death of Cecil the Lion. However, this is not the most rational response we've ever had to the killing of an animal. It, okay, I'm not, I'm not pro-poaching at home. I'm not going to go out on that limb and... The dentist, the American dentist who killed him, seems like the sort of worst of leftover American imperialism. But you know what? It turns out, according, as everyone knows, I have not suddenly become an expert in wildlife or poaching or Africa, but um, one of my editors at the New York Times, Charlie Homans, does know a lot about this. And he was pointing out today that the real force of destruction for lions in particular in Africa is actually habitat destruction. And big game hunting gives landowners in Zimbabwe an incentive not to destroy their habitats and turn them over to rangeland farming, but actually to keep them going. And so there's just this, we're having another moment in which Twitter in particular and the internet in general turns into this mob rule. One person becomes a scapegoat for a lot of evil in the world world and a lot of pent-up frustration. But if you actually start thinking, like, if you wanted to do something right now to help the lions in Africa, who, by the way, are not endangered the way the elephants are, but if you wanted to do something, maybe actually what you need to think about is the life of Zimbabweans, how you could change the conditions of their lives so that we don't have this kind of habitat destruction. And Charlie was pointing out that the big game hunters pay around $70,000 to show up and hunt game, and that that actually helps keep keep the habitat for more lions. So, you know, maybe what we should be doing is taking up collections that try to preserve habitat in Zimbabwe instead of, like, screaming against this one dentist who, at this point, is, like, holding the bag for, you know, every bad American with a gun. Oh, I didn't get it. He's holding the bag, and in that bag is the head of a lion. The that was the slate pitchiest. Uh, it was. Yeah, but I felt like that time. was. But she landed it. Yeah, it was. She did. I, I, was, she did. She, I was, was worried in the you beginning. Were, no, you. The that was well was done. That was. You landed that nicely. I um, could not have carried that off even close. <laughs> so I want to chatter. Everyone saw that Mike Huckabee um, made news this week when he said the Iran deal will take Israelis and march them to the door of the ovens, 
And as BuzzFeed pointed out, that Huckabee is always comparing things to the Holocaust. He compared, um, or to, to Nazism, he compared Obama's gun control policy to Nazi policies in 2014. Last week, he compared the Planned Parenthood recording to, to Nazism. He said, I just found myself chilled and thinking, only since the Nazis, not since the Nazis, have we seen such cold-blooded indifference to human life. In November of last year, he likened uh, aborted fetuses to victims of Auschwitz and Birkenau. But there were 55 million of them, as opposed to only 11 million killed at Auschwitz and Birkenau. He also called abortion a holocaust. And I was thinking, like, but he surely is not the only presidential candidate who is comparing things to Nazism. And of course, he's not. The Republican field loves comparing things to Nazism. So Ted Cruz loves a Nazi comparison. He he talked about not blocking Obamacare, that that was the Republican senators who didn't block Obamacare were appeasers. Um, they were the same as Neville Cha Chamberlain saying, except the Nazis, they will dominate the continent of Europe, but that's not our problem. The Nazis in this case being Obamacare. Um, Rand Paul in 2009 likened the rise of Obama to the rise of Hitler, where he said, people, people democratically voted in a Hitler, and I worry about that happening again now in our country. Lindsey Graham, loves, he, he is the best at this, he, he's called, Gaddafi, he likened Gaddafi to Hitler, Russia, and ISIS to Nazis, and he also says, he also says the Iran deal is like appeasing Hitler. Ben Carson, you will not be surprised to hear, said that to know Obama you have to read Mein Kampf. Um, and he also said of the Obama presidency, we're living in a Gestapo age. And basically the only candidate I could find who didn't compare something in our current, our current uh, political situation to, to Nazism is Donald Trump. So there you go. He's exceptional in so many ways. He's exceptional. Our interns, Tark Barrett, Aaron Bergen, and Faith Smith put this show together. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Thanks so much to Sixth and I for their always great hospitality. For Emily and John, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. So uh, let's go to Q&A. There are microphones up here. But I'm going to take the first question for you guys, because we talked about this last night, and we didn't get a good answer. If Donald Trump is the nominee for the Republicans and Bernie Sanders is the nominee for the Democrats, who wins? Oh, you're asking us. Yeah. You mean other than who wins the election? Do a reader. Okay, other we'll do a poll. Actually, we'll do, a, we'll do an audible poll. Other than America? Not who you want to yeah. win. Who you actually think who will actually, win. Who you actually think will win. If do so we're going to... Clap. First, gonna have Donald. You're gonna just Clap wait. Don't Donald. do anything yet. You'll, we'll have clapping if you think Donald Trump would win an election against Bernie Sanders, and then we'll have people clapping if you think Bernie Sanders would win an election against Donald Trump, a U.S. presidential election. So, if you think Donald Trump would beat Bernie Sanders in a presidential election, please clap now. I'm not clapping. Those were the right-thinking Americans. If you think. 
Bernie Sanders would beat Donald Trump in a general election. Please clap now. That's just not true. <laughs> what? Were you on the, the Donald Trump side last night? No, I'm, no, I'm on the Sanders side. Oh, no, you I'm are? On you are? Oh, yeah. I thought you were on the Trump no, side. No, I'm on the Sanders yeah. side. That's the... Did you switch? I think you switched. I did not night. switch. It was my question, and I knew the answer. Question over here. I'm going to bring it back to Trump. Assuming he is not the front runner, which candidate would be desperate enough to choose Trump as their vice presidential candidate Ooh. to pick up those points? And do you think it would be a crazier pick than McCain choosing Palin? I, uh, I think no one for two reasons. One, I don't think his, his votes are not transferable. They are, they are to him, which is why... Uh, which is a testament to his political skill that he's got people, you know, everybody was trying to do what he has done. All of those candidates, even Jeb Bush, maybe not the same way, but is to grab, to rocket to the top of the polls and stay there for longer, no matter what you say. Like that's, so anyway, I don't think they're transferable. Um, those a, people are B, not going to vote for anyone else? They're no, no, just, no, 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 they're not going to, they're, they're going to vote for other people, but they won't say, oh, because Donald is number two, I'm going to vote for A, or because Ted okay. Cruz is kind of like Donald. I mean, I think some people will think that, and some people will think, no, based on the remaining voters, I think I'm going to go with Walker. Um, but I think also nobody would want him as the number two for the same reason that um, candidates have almost never picked Charism- outwardly charismatic and independent number twos because y- you want to get the attention, not the person you put on the ticket. So um, that w- and he's would be very difficult to discipline. Um, <laughs> so I like that question. So Trump's brand, well, other than arrogance and bad hair, is um, doing everything wrong and yet rising to the top of the polls. So have we any faith that he's going to follow the format that Fox attempts to impose in the upcoming debates? Ooh. I've been wondering about that. I was thinking like it would be, he, 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 obviously his record, he doesn't have a lot of experience speaking with other people. He tends to speak himself <laughs> and they're in, not in groups. But I would have thought that, the, that he, he would he would probably be able to, to, to regulate himself just enough Is to get through Also, the they're night. looking for an excuse not to include him in another debate, yeah. so that would be an incentive but, to behave. Would yeah, it I hurt mean, or help him if he... I mean, that would be newsworthy if you know, Trump dominates the debate. So do you think it's good or bad for him if he follows the rules? I think it's like when Joe Biden was asked that really long-winded question about whether he could not be long-winded and said, you know, will you be able to um, stay disciplined and not you know, talk forever. And he said, yes, in a one word answer. And it won the night, like it was one of the great answers. And I think the totally obvious thing, it seems to me for Trump to do in the debate is to be totally low key, to speak in short and complete sentences. And Subject because verb. he's got the whole rest, like he's got this kit over here, the kit that everybody loves. So like in this special weird little performance, do the compulsory routine and have everybody say, wow, he did the compulsory routine. We thought he was just the guy who did the freelance routine. So I think it just seems totally obvious what he uh, should do. But, uh, you know, all, uh, all support to the poor moderators who are going to have to deal with 10 different people trying to keep it even so that everybody gets the right amount of time. So that Because when, when one person goes over, the clock is ticking. And you've got to remember who you didn't. That's going to be a really tough job. 
Given that this is the political GapFest, I want to ask about the, uh, the steamroller approach that uh, Uber has to local politics. Um, in the case that you were just talking about in New York, but also we saw here not too long ago in Virginia with the, um, with the General Assembly, they have this way of just going in and uh, starting to operate and then rewriting the rules after the fact. Um, what does that mean for American politics? Well, I mean, they are very, very, very canny in their lobbying. They also offer free rides all the time. They'll offer anyone who's going to a pro-Uber event a free ride. They'll offer free ride to politicians or policymakers. And there is no uh, better way to get ahead in politics than to have a service that politicians use. I mean, why do you think, why, why, is, why do sports monopolies exist? These leagues have monopolies because there's so many politicians who are sports fans, even though it doesn't make any sense. So, so they've, been, they've, been, um, they've been really canny about it. And they've already, I mean, the, the taxi industries were super established, heavy lobbying industries, particularly in New York. And the fact that Uber has already just like slapped them around completely is, is astonishing. Um, I don't know. I don't know where it stops. I mean, the other thing that was genius was this de Blasio app that they added in New York. I bet nobody clicked on that. But can you imagine how the advisors to de Blasio must it was a, have It was an app which it? told you how long how you'd have to wait for this Uber if de Blasio's regulations went, went to effect. And sometimes just a tombstone would come up, you know, meaning you would expire before your car would get there. That's not true. I... I just want to warn, we're going to be able to take, uh, there's going to be five more questions. So everybody, so there's going to be two here and three over there. And so everybody else, you're going to, sorry, you're going to be out of luck. Or no, actually, sorry, it's three. three, Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So given that Boston has been withdrawn for the 2024 Olympics, uh, if you had to pick an American city that's never hosted the Olympics before and stick them with the bill and bestow them the glory of hosting the Olympics, which would you pick? I feel like New York. New York's never had the Olympics. Has New York never? We're limited to American cities. Yeah. I feel like you have some strong opinion about a city. I I feel like this is right up your alley. I know. No, I don't have any strong opinion. I mean, I think I think probably it's a waste for New York. New York gets enough tourists. I I think you'd pick some place that was cool and awesome and could benefit from getting a bit more infrastructure and is about ready to get a new big sports team. But don't we always and worry that these cities end up losing their shirts in the end and it's just such a build-out for one of them? Yeah, event? well, that's why Boston gave it up. Right. Um, I mean, uh, I, Chicago, Austin. Chicago um, already lost it, right? right? Yeah, but they should have gotten it. Oh. They should have gotten it. I don't know. I, I can't even think of any cities. Were you just beatboxing there? <laughs> <laughs> I have never thought about about responding to a question that way. Miami already has sports franchises. Miami, yeah, maybe Miami. I don't know. Winter Olympics there. (laughs) Uh, So I want to ask about everyone's sort of favorite subject as the third rail in American politics, which is gun control, which is we've now seen in the Obama administration a kindergarten mowed down, a church mowed down, military recruiting centers, bases. And I, I know Hillary just sort of started to talk about it, but... Do we see any chance at all in like my lifetime as a 27-year-old that there'll be some more sensible gun control, or is it, or is it really the third rail that it will never be touched? I think it's the third rail, except for trying to complete the system we already have for background checks. I think the fear of mentally ill people having guns. Um, 
is strong enough and there's enough, I mean, unfortunately enough stigma about the mentally ill that the fact that some of these shooters had a history of mental illness, especially the latest movie theater shooter, and and that we were supposed to have a system in place that would have caught that person, that should mean that the existing incomplete set of rules and regulations we have goes into effect and actually, you know, local law enforcement, the FBI, people get together to close the gaps in that system. Um, But I just, I mean, you know, Obama and the Democrats spent a a fair amount of political capital on this a few years ago, and it must feel just like completely toxic to them to go back to that. I also wonder if, and this is, I'm not not being pedantic, I'm trying to figure this out, which is, I wonder if it's... Oh, you're being pedantic. If it really is a third rail, so the third rail is anybody touches it gets hurt. I think what's happened, what what's probably where we're coming with the gun control is you'll. It's a part of our split in the sense in which we have a um, you know a sort of a Republican and a Democratic America, and both of them can talk about it. So there's no penalty for a Democrat in a safe district to talking about gun control because we've already sorted so much that there aren't that many swing House districts anymore in which it would be a true third rail, Whereas, which is to say that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you talk about gun control in certain districts, you're gone. That's less true than it was 15 years ago, and it might continue to be less true in 10 years. So as opposed to, say, Medicare or Social Security, the third rails where really if you touch it either side, you're, you're doomed. So first off, thank you guys for doing this again. Wonderful. Um, so President Obama has had you know, a good string of policy successes the last, you know, say, eight weeks or so. But I think that a lot of supporters and maybe even himself would agree that a lot of people were disappointed or he didn't live up to the expectations that people had in 2008 about his ability to change Washington, his ability to win arguments through logic, anything. So we're about to enter this campaign how do we as voters avoid vesting these candidates with unrealistic expectations about what they'll be able to achieve as president, or is that impossible? But, I mean, maybe unrealistic expectations are important. First of all, they keep the flame of idealism alive, and even if it's not going to ever burn as bright as we'd want, we don't actually want it to be extinguished. And they put pressure on the president to, to try to at least, um, as, as I'm not saying Obama succeeded in this, but if, if we were completely realistic and we lowered the bar, would we get even less? But are any of the candidates running with any kind of idealism? I guess. On yes, the, they all are. But any of the, the you Hil- Hillary is not running with much idealism. Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and, and are, are not, who are the most likely candidates, are not particularly idealistic. So why do you say that? You mean because they're not presenting themselves? They're not the saying same? they're going to change anything. They're not, going to, saying they're, they're, they're not saying they're going to come and change the culture of it and everything is going to get better. I don't think oh. Hillary has any expectation that she's going to pass a single bill. Ooh. That's not the way she's running her campaign. I don't think so. What, what has she said that suggested I come with a sweeping agenda to make change in Washington? Well, she says she's going to basically totally reorient the economic system that's been tilted in favor of the wealthy over the last 40 but that's years. But that's... Okay. You can't that's do that like without big, passing not, a single bill. That's, not, that's like a, not like... That seems like what's a big what's piece a, What is that... I, well... She's what different is that rhetorically as a legislative from, thing? Well, I'll say, so I think you could argue this, that she is already... This may be totally wrong, but anyway, she's already been more specific than Obama was at this stage in his campaign in 2007 in terms of, like, it's just nobody pays attention to her specific speeches. I mean, it's just, like, she gave a big speech on climate change yesterday. But she doesn't posit that she is going to actually 
Obama posited, I'm going to actually get there. Well, We're he also was the, the nature I mean, of Washington. He, yeah, yeah. No, that's and true. I think she's much more realistic. That, no one is trying to make that claim because no one thinks that's true anymore. Yeah, I think that's. Although they get kind of close, but you're right. I mean, she's a more realistic. Like, I'm. Her argument is, I'm going to hammer it out through relationships and kind I'm of. I'm going to be your champion, but you yeah. still have to imagine that there's some change, it's, some pot of gold at the end of the road, or else what's the point? I have one just quick thing to say about this, which is I used to not like the big grand promises because they were unrealistic. But somebody explained to me who worked inside this administration who said that what happens with the president when they set these huge goals in campaigns is it gives you your marching orders for when you finally get into office because you never talk to the president and you need to intuit his will. And so when Reagan was president, people thought, you know, okay, I want whatever I do, I need to increase freedom in people's lives. So whether I'm at the Labor Department or the Pentagon, I need to increase freedom, stop the communists, and lower taxes. And that those were three kind of bullet points that always ruled your day. It's and like that, Michael Pollan. You need like three two-word bullet points yeah. to live by, right? And that and that, that uh, which is what you do in like a campaign. What like what? Like Michael Pollan's eating um, oh, oh, formula, oh. right? Eat less, mostly green, something else I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Six words Except too they need to be slight. Me. Oh, well. Some guy at the agriculture department is going to be like, what do I do? <laughs> anyway, so that's a way in which the campaign huge goal setting actually filters into governing in a way that seems much more useful than we would have guessed. I want to go back to uh, the situation with Planned Parenthood. Um, as a woman who appreciates choice over her body and who has had an abortion, I'm really concerned about there are more videos coming out, there's ra- pro-life rallies happening. Um, any updates on your thoughts about what's going on? Can more abortion stories from women help the pro-choice cause, are young people sufficiently worried about this? Yeah. Definitely seems like more videos. I mean, they say they have enough to roll one out for the next three months um, every week. So there will be more videos. Um, the shock value will lessen with each one, but the attention to this... Um, First of all, to the fact that there is fetal tissue donations and the fact that Planned Parenthood participated in it, that attention is going to continue to build. On the other hand, we're learning about the scientific progress that has been made with fetal tissue and how important those donations are to researchers. And a few of them are being brave enough to speak out. So there was an article today in the New York Times about there are two relatively small companies in California that do most of the processing for this tissue, and they talked a little bit about how that works, and some doctors who have relied on the tissue to make scientific advances talk about it. So maybe the society and culture will um, be able to absorb the idea that this happens and think about the benefits from it. And as I was reading this piece in the Times, what was um, seemed to me deeply sad and ironic from the point of view of Planned Parenthood is that if you believe them that they're not making a profit, and I do, you know, the $30 to $100 figure that the doctor um, said on tape is low and could very well cover transportation and storage costs, then, you know, they have essentially... Um, facilitated donations that parents wanted to make that are of tremendous benefit to science that these companies make money from. 
they're not actually benefiting from this transaction. And I think they probably did it um, mostly for the benefit of science. And yet they have, you know, just had this like complete disastrous. I mean, I have been getting, you know, automatically generated PR emails from Planned Parenthood multiple times a day as journalists in the last few weeks. And so the notion that they could be defunded and this could be the thing that finally forces the Republicans to really making an issue of it, that is a real threat. I mean, one thing I would say, Emily, is I agree with everything you just said, but you used a word there, which is the problem word, which is you said parents. They're not yep. parents, and that's like the thing that that's well, the, except, that's a point. I mean, there yeah. are some of them are parents, but they are in they're this case they're not parents. And, right? The women. And, you know what it is? And, we don't have and, a and, noun for this word, right? Yeah. I have to say, women well, seeking abortions yeah. every single time in order to make that the, get around. The, the Planned Parenthood should hope they get defunded. That would be yeah. That would be why gr- because the outrage will be profound. Oh, but so many, I mean, right. Except that not, that organization does so many things that women rely on. I mean, there are a lot of people who are going to suffer in the interim. Um, and, you know, we don't necessarily always restore funding in situations like that. Then you have two political problems. Um, one is Democrats don't, lots of Democrats don't want to speak about, don't want to talk about this. They're on the wrong, they just, they can't defend the conversations that are taking place over wine and cheese. That's the one problem. Second problem is you have the the likely Democratic nominee saying that I think Hillary Clinton, she either said she was troubled or they're problematic or so she is developing an ex- really? she's, she's developing God. an exit strategy. So she's That's feeble. Um, and then I think the third thing is the um, the third thing is that that while cost um, is one challenge from these, the second one is the manipulating and changing the procedure in order to preserve. That's the one that's both illegal and ethically tricky. And right. so that's and there, you, that we're going to hear lots more about. Right. So right. that you can argue that 30 to 100 dollars and there've been lots of interviews saying that that's not profiting, but the other bit that's pretty clear from the tape as far as everything I've read is a problem. And yeah. so that's that's and it's the first time medical ethicists have really taken seriously a notion, yes, we should investigate Planned Parenthood, right. which and once you do once you once before. you have ethicists saying yes, you should, it's a that's the doors up. I mean, yeah. Thank you so much, and uh, that I could ask my question because I've came all the way from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, on a, um, yeah, cool. Uh, oh. I'm here on a visitors program, and uh, I was so glad to time your show because I'm, I'm listening to the show every week. So thanks a lot. And I'm also going to ask the first foreign policy question because uh, uh, Sweden is a small country. What is Donald Trump's foreign policy? Good question. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, on this one, it's probably quite easy. No, because uh, we're a small country and we're neighboring the, the great big uh, Russian Federation. And uh, although, although it's not maybe in the spotlight all the time here in this foreign policy discussion, uh, it's a country that is moving away from, from democracy, that is waging a war in eastern Ukraine. And I just want to think, uh, what do you think is a reasonable American foreign policy towards Russia, for, towards uh, Russian-American relations in the coming like five to ten years when most likely Putin will still stay in power. So it's a too big country to, to ignore, but what is a reasonable sense to America to do in this situation? Speaking from a position of profound ignorance, uh, I would say um, that there are prosperous neighboring countries that we should continue to support. And, and the, the, the countries more like Poland and Estonia and Sweden and Finland and make sure that there everything is hunky-dory there and they're not threatened. We should, we should do what we can to keep energy prices low, which weakens 
Putin profoundly. We should, um, you know, I think some of the, I think making the oligarchs suffer, making it difficult for them to travel, making it difficult for them to get assets is a kind of pressure that is going to pay off in the long run. But should we pursue significant confrontations in Ukraine or uh, Iran? Probably not. Probably the, that seems like a, I mean, you, the Ukraine thing doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be any good policy for us to pursue there, in my view. Also, if you listen to U.S. policymakers talk about the help that Sergei Lavrov provided in the Iranian deal um, and the role the Russians played in that, they're grateful for what he did. So we, the United States um, has common interests in Iran, in Syria, with Russia. And so to the extent that those relationships are still required, it limits the ability to... Um, to hem the Russians in. I mean, obviously, they could way overstep, and then the U.S. would have to do something. But there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of places where our interest, where the U.S. interests are aligned with Russia, and so um, that'll limit the options in terms of punching back at what Putin does. It's like a dangerous animal living in your house. You just kind of want to have a room, and you put the and close the door, and just like put a little food under there. That's that would be a good policy, I think. Last question. I'm a little sad that it's the last question because I feel like I'm going to bring everybody down. I'm going to go back to Bill Cosby and something that you said, David. You said, isn't the shame and you know loss of money that he's experiencing going to be enough? He's still touring. He's still making a ton of money right now. He's still making money everywhere. Uh, Daily Worth on Monday published an article that said that uh, an average woman who reports a rape, and this is of someone who's not famous, loses $111,000. That's just in legal fees, medical fees, and lost income. That's not someone who's famous. You saying that is indicative of the rape culture that exists in this country. So how is that enough? The Well, I mean, that's a very fair and, and uh, good point. I don't. I. I think the problem with Cosby is that there does not appear to be. I don't propose that we completely overturn how the criminal justice system works in years of protection and statutes of limitations to prosecute Bill Cosby. The civil questions, I don't know, but I don't also don't think it's. It would be healthy for us to allow a situation where you can bring a civil lawsuit for something that happened to you decades and decades ago. You know, because Bill Cosby is a really bad guy. I think those are larger issues for us to grapple with. If, if there are things he can be prosecuted, if he can be prosecuted for rapes that he committed three years ago where you have good forensic evidence and there's, there's strong proof for it, then great. But I, don't, I worry about the damage done to the justice system, and therefore you have to look and say, what are the other ways you punish? And to me, the reputational punishment seems... Um, seems like could, what is available to us. Well, and certainly everyone could start boycotting his shows, right? I mean, this is a way in which the collective culture actually has a great deal of power. And, um, you know, I'm glad you reminded us that that has not... Sometimes you can feel like, well, I've crossed this person off my list, and it seems like the media I'm reading has as well. But there's this big audience that probably doesn't know about this, and some people don't care. And the degree to which that needs to change, right? That's the way in which, separate from these tricky questions about long past um, misdeeds and how we handle them legally, socially, we have complete control collectively. Um, so maybe that's the easiest way to make that change. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.